Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. When things go wrong, when things don't go the way that we want, when things don't go the way that we hope they will go, we often spend hours and hours criticizing ourselves. Criticizing ourselves can be very, very familiar. The challenge is that when we play it safe by criticizing ourselves, we spend hours and hours getting stuck in our heads. Hi guys, this is Dr. Z and I am back with another episode of the Playing It Safe podcast. And today I am excited to share a conversation I had with Dennis Stirch. Dennis is a psychologist and he is the founder of the Center for Compassion Focused Therapy in the United States. And he is well known as one of the experts on the psychology of compassion and compassion-focused therapy. In this conversation, Dennis shares how he practices self-compassion, awareness, and mindfulness throughout his day. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like it, remember to subscribe to the newsletter Playing It Safe. You can go to the website www.thisisdrz.com. Let's jump onto the episode, and I wish you a great week. Bye-bye. If a person that is listening to this conversation struggles with self-criticism and harsh criticism, what can they do to put into action self-compassion in the moment when they are struggling? I think the first thing to remember is that you didn't choose your suffering. You didn't choose to be particularly self-critical. You did, you know, the, the shame response and self-critical inner dialogue is a very natural, if not universal part of being a human being. And you, you're, you're not alone in that and you didn't choose it. So I remember many years ago, maybe 2005 and what an early like talk I gave and someone said, well, a non-judgmental part about being mindfulness, like how can you uh, well, what if you're still judgmental when you're practicing non-judgment? And I remember saying, it's good to be non-judgmental about your judging, you know, like, let's just like adopt an attitude and a stance. And then once you at least orient yourself to that point of view, like working with a therapist or a teacher or reading, and you get it in your head that there, it is at least possible to hold myself, you know, in a less blame ridden stance and it's possible to direct acceptance 
and compassion inward. Well, then from that awareness, that, uh, you know, mind sight, you can then begin to practice small ways that you can pause, slow your breathing, feel your feet on the floor, you know, make small adjustments to your posture so that your back is more straight and you're less collapsed. And just consciously, like an actor would be, you know, pretend to be someone else, consciously speak to yourself from a place of compassion. Imagine yourself that way. And there's so many different techniques, but it has to begin with like a, like a, like an orientation and a point of view that you can understand and internalize. Then a few simple practices and then making those practices practices that are a part of your daily life. Um, sometimes when I'm talking about how we can be gentle and caring with ourselves, I hear comments like, well, if I do that, I am letting myself off the hook. I am not making myself accountable for something I did. It is as if I am kind with myself, I'm actually letting myself off the hook. So I will act in a way that I don't want to act again. What would you say to that type of skepticism? Well, if this was a longer discussion about like one-on-one -on -one therapy, uh, we would look at like, what's the function of that in someone's life? Like, what is the function of pushing away against warmth and compassion and support? and clinging to self-recrimination, because that's probably something that someone developed for a reason, and there must be something of averse or anxiety-provoking about warmth and, 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 and self-acceptance. Like, and that can happen if we have like people who are close to us, who hurt us, maybe as children, or like, so we kind of, empathy can be scary, real intimacy can be scary, so we're like, but no, no, I don't, I have to say, I have to tough love. I have to be on the hook, you know, that's, so that's one way to think about it. But, but another thing is just to recognize that, you know, in Kristen Neff's research and in some research from, you know, Paul Gilbert's group and others, you'll see that, um, you know, chronic shame and brutal, you know, cruel self-criticism, it, it, it's, it's not really correlated with living a bigger life. Usually it, it's usually like correlated with depression and anxiety and stagnation or, or fear. It, it like really can cause problems. It's actually shame across different therapy modalities, types of therapy. It actually shame makes those therapies less effective. Right. And, and self-compassion is not highly correlated with narcissism. It's not correlated with self-indulgence. So so having an inner coach that is a supportive and caring inner coach, having a part of ourselves that helps correct us and keep us on track, but that isn't a bully is, is actually not letting ourselves off the hook. You know, it's, it's, it's something entirely different. Um, when we can step back from the content of that voice that is rejecting some kindness to ourselves and look at what am I getting from this, I think that conversation can expand into looking that perhaps there is a history of being harsh with ourselves or someone has talked to us in our life historically and we're used to it and we are scared. We're scared about being kind with ourselves. You just mentioned shame, and I'm really curious when we think about all types of forms of anxiety, whether that's performance anxiety, social anxiety, OCD, 
there is a part of oneself that sometimes develop this narrative as if something is wrong with us. Something is wrong. And, and that comes with a lot of shame. And shame is a feeling that makes people hide from who they are to restrain their relationships, their connections with others. How would you think about shame through the lens of self-compassion? And what are things people can do to learn to manage this experience of shame? Paraphrasing a sort of a description of shame from Patricia DeYoung, uh, it's not exactly the right quote, but she ba- says something like, shame is the, the, the experience of a disintegration of our sense of self in the presence of a dysregulating, you know, other, the presence, like, so some, some imaginary other, often uh, learned by the presence of an actual abusive other, but some judging presence that we kind of experience says we're not enough or we're going to be held in the minds of this other as as inadequate or less than or worthless uh and and that is a very threatening experience because sometimes because it also relates to trauma memories of chronic uh, abuse neglect or impingement but also because we are, you know, we evolved as this supremely cooperative and social species with a very low birth rate and a very risky births, risky for the mother and the offspring. And as a result, we're, we're a species that, you know, needs one another. They say a lone monkey is a dead monkey and humans are even more at risk. Like, so we're, we don't remember that in our society because the work of so many people surrounds us. You know, I'm looking at books and desks and electronics and plumbing and all that was like a community that brought that into being. So like the, you know, I'm safer as alone in this room than my brain would realize. Right. So my brain has like, you know, ancient behavioral repertoires and ancient structures. My threat system in many ways is something I share with a squirrel or even an amphibian or so like I have this always on better safe than sorry threat detection system. That response to social threat, that response to, am I not enough? Am I not enough? Am I not enough? And then I have these loops where like the, because of fusion with cognitions, because of the way the human language and the brain and thinking functions, you know, I can then have a, a, oh, maybe I'm inadequate. Maybe I'm worthless. And then my mind will create a loop between my ancient threat system brain and my like, you know, prefrontal cortex or enough. Oh, well, why? Maybe I could do better. Maybe I should change. And, and that, that, that inner critic is like saying like, yeah, I better not be left off the hook because underneath all that is to like protect you on some level most of the time, but it doesn't actually protect you. It actually creates a lot of suffering, perpetuates and exacerbates suffering. Whereas the self-compassionate inner voice, when we cultivate it, which takes time and a self and an embodied compassionate presence so that our uh, nervous systems, like social safeness experience and our like homeostatic kind of regulatory processes, like the polyvagal complex and myelinated vagus nerve, like that can allow us to experience the rest and digest and tend and befriend, you know, kind of mode, caregiving, care receiving mode, you know, and, and that allows us to have greater heart rate variability, greater immune system functioning and less to feel less threatened and worthless. So that's kind of what the way I understand it, Eddie. I love it. 
I think sometimes we think that when we are harsh with ourselves, we will get things done more or we're keeping ourselves accountable. Uh, but when we forget that when we are at ease and perhaps more in tune with ourselves and not on threat, we can actually do so much more. You mentioned the aspects of emotional regulation that may be associated with self-compassion. How do you see that connection between emotional regulation and self-compassion? Well, one of the ways we learn to regulate our emotions is in the context of relationships with caregivers. When an uh, infant or child is uh, having overwhelming experiences of threat or sadness, they are soothed and grounded by the presence of loving, supportive uh, parents or other caregivers. In fact, humans uh, in our most natural environment earlier, where there's like co-parenting, allo-parenting, like a community of people who would be around to look after these very fragile uh, offspring, you know? And, and so when a child learns that it's uh, he or she, they are, are, are socially safe, emotionally safe, they're protected, they're grounded, they're going to receive material support, all of the, the functions of attachment emotions and affiliation emotions, those self-same neural networks involved in interpersonal neurobiology of attachment regulate and downregulate excessive arousal, excessive autonomic arousal, and the, and the ways in which the, our, our thinking mind, our agentic mind, our prefrontal cortex, the ways in which we, that part of our brain and mind downregulates our experience of threat and downregulates our threat system that those things are intimately connected with an experience of social safeness. That's how we evolved. It's just how we evolved. It's who we are. So all emotion regulation has a individual historical relationship and a species-wide historical relationship with attachment and affiliation and, and feeling loving and loved. Like So th th there are similar software, hardware, wetware, whatever we want to call it. Like it's, it's, it's related, enormous. Let's say that you and I were having an argument and I am feeling very triggered. I'm really upset. And then you are very mellow yellow, cool like a cucumber. And I'm screaming to the heaven. <laughs> How could I practice self-compassion in that moment? How can we tap into these regulatory aspects of what I am going through? I think part of it, you know, there, there's, there's in the context of an argument, it's good to remember that anger is a threat-based emotion. You know, DBT, other types of therapy talk about anger as like a secondary emotion or a response to other emotions. And that's kind of true, but actually aggressing has to do with predation and protection. And it's a way of fight flight or freeze, you know, it's the first F in that series of Fs, you know, like that's really important. So if you're in that, you know, a, you know, I'm a, a expansively multi-ethnic person, but a lot of those, uh, you know, like a, it, it, I was raised in an Italian New Jersey household and people who've seen the Sopranos will know that there's a certain amount of anger there culturally sanctioned as well. So there, you know, when we're enraged, if we can, manage to slow our breathing and deepen our breathing and feel grounded and rooted and pause, just allow ourselves to pause, observe the emotion, label the emotion, and then direct 
like compassion inward with the in-breath, compassion outward with the out-breath, and slow down, gain working distance, decentering, diffusion from the flow of thoughts, that, and, and, and to be able to ride the waves with acceptance of emotion, the waves of the action urges that come with anger. Like, I have to do something now, I have to say something now, I have to act and and you know if you're in the presence of a, of a of another person who is able to stay calm and grounded that might help but it depends right on your personal history so if you if you if you're if you're a person with a trauma history and you're threatened by connection mm-hmm. somebody be warm and calm it might actually make it worse right and then there's forms of compassion where somebody might seem submissive more attacking but if 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 we can uh, uh, like get into that mode that is inherently psychologically flexible, which is not authoritarian but authoritative, which is grounded and and, and strong and centered, that helps us. It helps the people around us. This is what we can do. I love it because many times we forget that we can use our body and our senses to ground ourselves. I think we get too stuck into all the rumination that we're mind's telling us and we get consumed by a world pain in our head. But if we can go back to our body, like doing what you suggest, like taking a deep breath and slowing down and watch the emotion, our body can help us to ground ourselves, even though we are very, very stressed. That's a really good point. And using imagery to practice being the version of ourselves we wish to be. So in compassion-focused therapy, we're like doing exercises of imagining a compassionate, wise, and strong, caring version of ourselves, And that's a part of like a daily practice, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for years. And much like people saying the rosary or uh, Buddhist practitioners imagining a, a bodhisattva of compassion or, you know, so you become, you have a sense of who you wish to be, a sense of your valued aims, what you want to embody. And you practice embodying it. So then when you're under conditions of threat or trauma being triggered, traumatic re-experiencing emotions, as much as you can, you can ground and and embody that version of yourself. So how would I look in the context again of, let's say, having an argument, will I visualize this compassionate version of myself? Will I visualize how I want to behave if I'm being gentle and caring with myself? Yeah, I mean that's one way to go, and and it it it's not something you want to do for the first time in the context of an argument, you know. But it is something that, with practice, you can do. And it's funny the the example of an argument is is one of the exercises that we use in uh, compassion focused therapy and compassion focused act work. Like you you realize you have an angry self, you have a sad self, you have an anxious self, and different emotions organize the body and mind differently. Different behaviors show up, different sensations show up. So we learn to differentiate these different emotional states. We practice being in those emotional states, and then we practice bringing compassion to those emotional states in, in imagery and in, in sessions or groups. And then it's much easier, you know, than if you've done that for a while, you know, uh, striking while the iron is cold, you would practice. And then you're in an argument, it's much easier. It's not always easy. It doesn't always work. But like, it's much easier to be like, oh, let me slow down. Hello, angry self. I get it. How am I identifying my angry self? Well, what would my compassionate self say? Would it put a hand on the shoulder of, of this part of me? 
that that's that's one way to go. There's other approaches from self compassion, but that, those are some that I like. Lovely emphasizing that it's all about having a daily practice. I think any time that we're trying to have a behavioral change or to develop different parts of ourselves, that doesn't happen from one day to another day. It's a practice that we cultivate and we nourish. If I can ask a little bit about that, how did your process in getting into compassion-focused therapy? What was your journey? How did you build your practice? Well, I had a prior experience with Buddhist meditation from childhood because of some family members who were, you know, caring and supportive and, and were Zen practitioners. Uh, and then that was something that really grew when I was in college. And then after college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that. You know, I was like, what am I going to do? I, I, I don't know how to build on this, but I knew I wanted to make my life about it. And also, you know, the compassion part of my spiritual work and, and, you know, personal like meditative work, but that was a really healing thing for me, the self-compassion, you know, in the eighties and nineties, I was like, this is one of the things that really made me feel whole and that life was worth living was to not just self-compassion, but when I, when I was, you know, gentler with others. And when I had devoted some of my time to caring for others, and when I had found safe other people in my life who I could allow uh, to, to be compassionate towards me. So compassion flowing out to others, compassion flowing in and, uh, and self-compassion as well as like a different sense of self, like identifying less with the everyday ego self and more with the sort of big mind and the interconnected, like ground of being mind that we talk about in Zen or Dog Chan or, you know, some forms of Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. Uh, so from that place, that's what have brought me into graduate school. And I wanted to like study meditation and therapy in the early nineties. And people said, you know, you're a weird or a hippie or and nobody does that. You know, some people, did it, obviously but nobody in my neighborhood or in my grad school program. So then, you know, I just kept with it. Cause that was why I showed up. It wasn't like, oh, well, uh, then I'll go study, you know, uh, misophonia or I'll, I'll learn about, uh, you know, this other problem. It's like, that's why I came here. I came here because of Dharma, compassion and Western psychology. I wanted, it's what I want to do. And then afterwards, uh, you know, I, I kind of connected with the ACT community in and, you know, really early 2099, 2001 started to like learn about ACT and, and that seemed really consistent with, uh, you know, Buddhism, but it wasn't overt. The, the compassion piece was less uh, explicit is a better way to put it. And then was working at the American Institute for Cognitive Therapy with Bob Leahy and practicing CBT. We were bringing ACT and mindfulness. It was a very exciting time. Met, and met Paul Gilbert at a conference in Sweden with it. Dalai Lama and Tim Beck were having a big discussion. And it was like, I met this guy. Bob said, hey, you've got to meet, you know, Steve was also at that conference. He's like, you've got to meet Paul. He He's into compassion meditation, and he's also a guitar player, and you guys have all this in common. And then Paul and I became really good friends, and we did some writing together. I studied a lot with him. I did years and years and years of studying and working with him. It's, I guess we're 17 years into this thing now, and my wife was a colleague for many years before we became a couple, actually, and she had similar interests. And then, you know, you just act and compassion and zen and life, you know, just kind of comes together. And then it 
you know, and that's fed by a daily practice, fed by a daily meditation practice. It's fed by the, what they call the precepts in Buddhism for those people who don't know that term. And it, precepts kind of means a decision that you make in advance. So like, you know, after a long time, I decided, okay, I'm not going to have any intoxicants or I'm not going to eat certain things, or I'm, I'm not going to behave in certain ways. I'm going to, you know, try to structure my life so that I'm in a practice of as much as I can be of awakening and sharing that with others and being a part of this human family. Um, and I think, you know, you wouldn't assume, like if I went to a personal trainer, which I probably should do, yeah, like I wouldn't just assume that I'm, I'm like my muscles would grow really big or that like, you know, I'd be able to run, you know, for 20 miles because then I can see my body. You know, this is like, I can see my body and I know how long it takes for certain things to change. You know, the brain and the mind are different. You know, the mind is invisible entirely because it only exists in our phenomenology and the brain and neural network is like, it's in, it's inside our body for one thing. And then also it's tiny. Like, so there are more discrete neural, uh, you know, combinations in the network. The network can have more discrete states than there are stars that are visible in all in the in, in the galaxy. You know, like from here, you know, uh, there's or there more than there are grains of sand on like probably all the beaches on the planet. That's how many in that beautiful brain of yours. Like that's how much is possible. Um, and building new neural networks to override and overwrite trauma responses and, and anxiety disorders and depression that takes time for, for, for new behaviors to grow. And it takes time for neural networks to, 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 to be restructured as well as behavioral networks to, to restructure. And, uh, and to, to be, and it's an additive process. When I say restructuring, I don't mean like, you know, cognitive restructuring. I mean like building something new that takes time and it takes practice. And that's important to remember with mindfulness and self-compassion and acceptance is it's like, it's sort of invisible at first, but it still is going to take time. You can't just say, well, you know, I, like, oh, I'm, I'm extensively read at uh, Olympic diving. So I'm going to go dive. No, no, you got to learn it. Because like you know, <laughs> it's the same with compassion and uh, self-compassion and mindfulness. You, you could read all about it, but you're practicing, you're, it just doesn't happen. So speaking about daily routines or daily habits or these precepts, how does your precept look? So when you wake up and you open your days, what comes next for you? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. It's pretty specific. And there's a specific teaching that came from the, you know, the John Bennett line of the Gurdjieff tradition, which is where this comes from, from a teacher, my name Robert Fripp. Not a formal teacher, but a, a mentor, buddy, friend the guy for many years and in that in that lineage and that kind of way of working uh the practice would be you know you wake up and you say hello universe or hello god or hello shiva or yahweh allah whatever it is hello the force i'm awake and then i'll say to myself not out loud because that is sort of obnoxious if there's anywhere but i could do it you know like hello you know hello god thank you thank you like, thank you for this life. It doesn't have to be like an anthropomorphic God or a theistic presence. Just like, hey, context of all contexts. Like, wow, I'm here again. And I, I never really left. This is pretty cool. Thank you. And thanks for my breath. Thanks for my family, my the food that I eat. Like, this is really cool. And then don't spend a lot of time with it. Just like the hello, 
thank you, good wishes to the rest of this holy universe. And then first thing is, uh, you know, go have a morning meditation, you know, like look right there, same space every day, 15 minutes or so. And for me, it's like a specific kind of meditation. This doesn't have to be the same one. You know, I, I practice a, a sort of a Zen tradition kind of meditation with a few things that are there, you know. It's a meditation practice. If I'm sitting next to you, what will I see you doing? How will that look? I think it would look, uh, I mean, I, you know, kind of as a regular, you know, I mean, it varies. Medit Sometimes I meditate lying down uh, with my legs up in an Alexander Technique kind of uh, active rest position. And uh, that's good for my back because I have some uh, back problems. So I know I'm going to be meditating with clients later in the day. Sometimes I use that opportunity because it allows a stretch. And then other times I'm sitting on like a Zen uh, Zafu and, you know, um, eyes are usually like, three quarters closed to closed and back straight and I'm following the breath in and I'm following it out and I'm have like a, you know a sort of a there's a form of mantra that's often involved during part of the meditation there's breathing awareness of uh you know compassion and energy into the body and allowing those kind of states it's a sort of a concentration meditation really is element of mindfulness to it and then there's a few other practices which come as a few little imagery, visualization practices. But then after that, I'll get up, you know, have coffee, uh, hopefully practice guitar if I have time, you know, and I'll like practice some classical guitar or Django Reinhardt guitar you know, exercises, which is meditative and deliberate. And uh, other times, you know, maybe there's two like texts from clients that are need immediate attention or things that need immediate attention. So I don't quite have as much time for that practice, but I still ground. I, I like to eat breakfast mindfully. I think that's extremely important. And then there's a few different reminders throughout the day where bringing attention to different parts of the body, uh, different practices. I usually then at the end of the day after work and time with family, helping put my daughter to bed. Before I go to bed, I'll come back to sort of like where I am right now. Brief meditation, you know, you hopefully usually like play guitar, not play, but practice specific things for an hour, a lot of repetitive exercises. And then, you know, read a bit. And at the end of the night, I, I practice what's called backwards remembering. So I like reflect over the day, all the things that happened back to the beginning of the day, just a little bit for a couple of minutes. And then I'll say, you know, you know, good night, universe. Thanks. This was cool. Happy to have this day. And then sleep. So then in the next morning when it begins, begins again, and that's an interior architecture. And the interior architecture is so that I'm not just having one moment after another moment after another experience. So there's a continuity and a thread of practice. And then usually I'm lucky enough to have a job where I get to meditate with people a few times during the day or have mindful conversations, related conversations, practice compassion, you know, having a three-year-old, there's opportunities, practicing patience and frustration tolerance and compassion and care, you know, all that. So that's sort of the practice. It's like staying in it. It's just not breaking out of that. And there's all sorts of reminders in the art that's around me of waking up and, you know, and service and. You know, I, I'm building in more physical, like exercise practice, like yoga and gentle yoga and things like that. But I think these are all like 
having aims that you're moving towards that are consistent with your values, all of it's pretty, it's pretty simple, really. Makes a difference to have that consistency and to go through different times during the day. Because I think maybe at one time may not be enough. The practice is embedded in how you move from one hour to another hour and from one activity to another activity. I think that's a beautiful reminder for all of us. Then if we're running out of time, I have only one more question. And thank you again. I absolutely love having a chance to hear how you see things to the lens of self-compassion. If you were to have a cup of tea or coffee or a beer or a scotch with any person you want today, who would that be and why? Really, it's an astonishing question. Um, part of me wants to say my wife, but, you know, even though I see her all the time, constantly, uh, you know, and we like working from home. Um, if I could, if I could, it's just a, I would say, you know, but if I were really going to, what the hell, like, you know, uh, I would say Bill Frizzell, who's a, a, a jazz guitarist, is very innovative and very interesting. I've seen him many times. I've met him once or twice, but didn't have any conversation. And I think he just has a very beautiful, gentle, caring way of being, you know, and I love the way he communicates musically. And I think it would be interesting to have a conversation with him. Uh, he's, you know, there are other people who are maybe like, I would love to know more about their mind with the, you know, the, the Dharma or psychology. And there's other people, even guitarists who I would like, oh, I'd love to see or, or, or artists or painters or, you know, you know, whatever world leaders. But I think, uh, you know, having a coffee with Bill Frizzell would be really interesting. That'd be cool. I love it. Love it. And just for me as a reference, is there any song that you would recommend me to listen? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's actually a book I'm reading right now called Str A Beautiful Dreamer is the book, but Bill Frizzell, but the song is called Strange Meeting. That's that's an astonishingly good uh, and interesting piece of music. So I would, you know, that, that's one I would recommend. I will definitely take a look. I always welcome music recommendations and nothing hey. like jazz, right? Nothing like jazz. Dennis, cool. thank you so much. I am very feel very grateful for the time that you've had sharing all your wisdom and I really really hope that we can do this again soon that would be spectacular I, I so appreciate all the things you do and I appreciate you on a personal level you're just a beautiful soul wonderful you contributed so much to the world so thank you so much for, for having me thank you so much Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you are feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!